I'm Fran Scott, and this is the final episode of How to Build a Railway. We heard all the way back in episode one, the case for HS2, so expanding capacity on the UK's busiest route and providing a new form of low carbon transport. But mega projects like HS2 aren't just about building a new piece of infrastructure. They're an opportunity to reshape and regenerate communities, the economy and the entire country. Projects on this scale have the time, money and size to influence and improve entire industries by trialling new methods, investing in new technologies and by giving opportunities to new areas of a workforce. Ever since HS2 was announced, the company has been planning not just how they would build a railway, but what kind of legacy HS2 wanted and how they would deliver it. Very early on in the project's development, the legacy team decided on one of their major focuses, jobs and skills. So both in terms of the, the infrastructure industry and the rail industry, it's an ageing workforce. So it's a, it's a workforce that's predominantly over 45. It's also a workforce that's very white and male and, and has struggled to attract females, but also ethnic minority candidates as well. It is a problem an industry with a lack of diversity, and we're trying to change that. And, and the scale and size of HS2, you know, we're, we're looking to get up to a workforce of 34,000 at peak, means that, that we can really make an industry step change and we can be a game changer for, for the industry in general. This is Natalie Penrose, the head of legacy at HS2. And that means I cover uh, all aspects of legacy that's related to people. So my team deal with equality, diversity and inclusion at HS2, but also skills, education and employment. And, and what we're trying to do is build a workforce now for HS2, but also a workforce that's fit for the future, a diverse, skilled and talented workforce that will benefit the UK infrastructure industry for years to come. Diane Crowther is the CEO of HS1, and she's worked in the rail industry for over 35 years. She has seen firsthand the issues with the emerging skills gap in the rail and infrastructure industries. Outside of my day job, I chair an organisation called ENSAR, which is the National Skills Academy for Rail. We do a lot of data analysis on skills. We provide that information to, to the sector. We support a lot of SMEs in terms of their apprenticeships and accreditation and training. It's a big issue, huge issue. We've put out a challenge to the industry to sort of say, you know, on all your apprenticeship programmes, you need to double the number of apprentices that you're recruiting, because if you don't, there's going to be a skills gap. Changing the look of an industry's workforce, of course, doesn't happen overnight. But with a project like HS2 that takes place over decades, Natalie and her legacy team knew that they had a long enough time to inspire the next generation. So um, in terms of trying to build a workforce or fit for the future, we start young. So we have a, a programme of STEM workshops uh, across the line of route where we go out to schools uh, and talk to them about STEM subjects. There are interactive workshops uh, where we have people go in and, and bring to life what working uh, in this sort of industry can mean and really try to inspire that workforce of the future. But it's not just about inspiring the next generation, 
It's also about hiring them. HS2 Limited employs around 2,000 people, and they have committed to creating an internal workforce that is diverse and inclusive. And they have been really active in ensuring that they hire people from underrepresented backgrounds. But it's not just the 2,000 internal staff. Across the whole supply chain, tens of thousands of people will work on HS2 across the project's lifetime. And we have requirements for all our contractors in terms of EDI, uh, but also for skills education and employment. For example, we ask our contractors to have 4% of their workforce formed of apprentices. We're aiming to have 2,000 apprentices over the life of the project. And I think it's fair to say we're, we're smashing that target. We've, we've just gone past the 1,000 apprentice milestone. We currently have almost 1,200 apprentices working on the project, and that's up and down the line of route across all of our supply chain. And that's one of the great things about HS2 is, you know, the work you you have done on, you know, developing your apprentices, developing the schemes and, and really being quite intelligent about looking down the line and going, OK, when it's built, we're going to need all of these resources. So actually, we need to grow our own. Yeah. And also being quite innovative in terms of how you grow your own and how you get people in. The HS2's apprenticeship scheme has given thousands of young people an opportunity in an industry that many of them hadn't previously thought about joining. I went onto the HS2 website where I found all the apprenticeships and project management just really stood out to me, to be honest. I didn't really know too much about the industry. I'd never known a project manager before. But like I say, the role sounded quite good. And when I got through the first stage, I started to look into it quite a bit more and realised that it was, you know, it was a job that would, would suit me and my personality. So I didn't know what a project manager was. I, I'd never heard of it until until I applied for the position because I, I read the criteria of what they wanted. I felt like I could do that. I could do it effectively into my skills and I could grow a career in it. Sam and Alex are two of HS2's apprentices. And they both highlighted the freedom that they have been given on the apprenticeship scheme to move around different parts of the project and find out what they're actually passionate about. Every apprentice has a different experience, has their own unique, unique experience. They invest a lot of money and time into you as, as an apprentice here. And um, I think that's really good because you hear a lot of horror stories about apprenticeships sometimes. I mean, people who've, who've had apprenticeships and not really gone anywhere with them and, you know, have just had to be quite bored in them. I think that's what makes HS2 apprenticeships what they are. I think having that independence and having that freedom to move around and decide what you like. For example, I was working on a construction site eight months ago and now I'm working in an office in digital engineering, which is coding and programming. Two very polar opposite things, but they actually link into each other quite, quite cleverly and quite, quite uniquely as well. We are given a lot of influence over what we do. It's our decision, how long we spend in a placement, what place we want to go to. So the way it works is you can talk to your line manager, you can talk to the talent team. So there's a team of, of three individuals that look after the apprentices and graduates at HS2. Or you can contact a different team yourself. So on my, on my previous rotation, I contacted someone and they said, Right, let's put a start date down, 23rd of January, and then I move. So it's really flexible, it's really easy, and it's really fun. 
The scheme allows apprentices like Alex to get experience working all over the project. So at the moment I'm working in civils delivery. So what we do is we put the bridges up, build the tunnels and set everything up ready to put the rails and um, the stone down to get the trains on. So in my current rotation, I've done a week with a construction assurance manager and I had a look at their role. I've done a week with a commercial manager, had a look at his role. I did a week shadowing a senior project manager to know what he did. And then I spent a lot of my time with one of the project managers to see what they do, to give me a more broad experience and understand how each function feeds into our team, which has been quite interesting, exciting. It's good for development on a, on a personal level because I've learned a range of skills I now know how to build a bridge, which I didn't know before. And it's not just skills and experience that Sam and Alex will take from their apprenticeship. The HS2 project manager apprentices also go to college to study for their PMQ, their project manager qualification. And even after they have completed the scheme, they get help from HS2 to figure out what they want to do next. There is an offboarding process where HS2 will help you, will sit down with you and, and help you decide a role that they think would suit you and what you suit, what you think would suit yourself. There's a the future talent team, like Alex mentioned, um, their sole job is to support obviously the grads and apprentices throughout these processes and throughout the whole apprenticeship. Really, they're, they're a great team. It gives you a more information to make your own calculated decision, basically. Those who graduate from the HS2 Apprenticeship Scheme often do stay working with HS2 in some form, but they also get opportunities from across the industry. When you're off board, it's not solely for HS2 itself. You, you look at jobs in the supply chain, so you can still be working with HS2, but say for a, a different company. But that's completely down to the individual and their personality, really. I think there's people who like to, to stay in the same place and you know build their career in one place, and I think that's great. But there's also many individuals who like to explore different companies and different avenues, and I also think that's great as well. Alex says that the HS2 Apprenticeship Scheme has changed the trajectory of his life, and he would definitely recommend others in his position to take the risk and apply for the scheme. I mean, you look at me, me and Sam today. Before we came to HS2, we had very little options. We were, we were a little bit lost, and now you sit and look at us and go, We've got, we've got, in a sense, too many options. And that, that's what HS2 does. It, it just gives you too many options and you're like, I never realised the world I was walking into when I applied. And I'd say to anyone who wants to apply, do it. It is worth it because you'll never get to do anything like this again. And there's some fantastic people here with, with careers that they've had all over the world. And you'll get to learn a, a big range of knowledge. So go for it. It's hard, but what HS2 invests into you, it's worth it. And it's not just the apprentices working directly for HS2. Up and down the supply chain, HS2 has required its contractors to help bring the next generation into the workforce. We're clear about our commitment to, to bringing in people with new skills and different backgrounds. So those things are built into the tendering process. They're assessed through procurement and then requirements are built into contract going forward. 
so it's a it's a combination of sort of procurement uh, and it's a contract uh, combination of building into contract and then it's monitoring it so you know one of the things that makes hs2 different is, is the quality of data that we've got so we're able to monitor workforce diversity across our supply chain we know whether they've got external accreditation we also monitor the number of apprentices they have and the number of people they're bringing into the project from a situation of worklessness so that really rich data that we've got over tens of thousands of people now working on this project enables us to to understand whether we are really making that step change that we've aspired to achieve. Already Natalie has seen how contractors across the supply chain have embraced their apprenticeship goals. So whilst this is in contract and that's a key way of achieving the outcomes we're seeing, seeing the cultures develop is is really rewarding. Seeing those cultures in our supply chain when this is genuinely important to them, this is something they're striving to be the best at, is, is uh, you know, a, a great thing to see. It's fair to say that the sort of our supply chain are exceeding the, the expectations that we set through contracts. So at the moment, the momentum is great. We're seeing workforce diversity above industry averages and in some cases significantly above industry averages. And it's not just young apprentices. HS2 has been bringing thousands of people back into the workforce. And we brought over 3,000 people into employment who were previously not in work. And those are people who've got sustained employment for 26 weeks or more. These are people who are going to work for big joint venture contracts and who will potentially have a career with, with those businesses you know, for years to come. So it's a win-win situation, really. We get all, all of the benefit of that on HS2 and our supply chain get new skills, new talent that they can hopefully nurture and employ for, for potentially decades to come. Legacy is not just about creating jobs and skills. Mega projects like HS2 also need to consider their economic legacy. Communities up and down the route of HS2 are impacted by the years of construction. But HS2 has been providing these communities with funding for community projects so that even as they experience the disruption of construction, they can also experience the benefits that projects like HS2 can bring. Cathy Elliott is the chair of HS2's funding programme. And that includes our Community and Environment Fund, Business and Local Economy Fund, and also for Phase 2A, our Biodiversity Investment Fund. The Business and Local Economy Fund is known as BLEF, and the Community and Environment Fund is called CEF. And it was about putting together a funding programme that gives back to communities disrupted by the construction of HS2 but way above compensation and mitigation and additional mitigation funds. So you might want to see it like a social responsibility programme. The funds are administered independently and consider applications from any communities impacted by HS2's construction, particularly from those within one kilometre of the route. The Community and Environment Fund has helped hundreds of community projects get off the ground, and they range from very small to very big ideas. And we funded a huge variety of projects over the years. I mean, we're literally in hundreds now, well over 230 projects we've funded along the phase one line of route. So we've been awarding projects, small amounts of money, nine, 10,000 pounds, which might be getting a, a community gardening project or Britain in Bloom project up and running. And then we do the large scale projects as well, which are over 75,000. We've done some big scale stuff, including 
at Warwickshire Arts Centre. It's our biggest arts project that we've funded. We contributed to their capital development. Again, a fantastic legacy. The plaque will be on the wall for the HS2 funding programme for many, many years to come. And also Wendover Woods is one of our big projects that we've funded to support the facilities and improve them there that benefit communities far and wide. There has been a huge variety in the projects funded by HS2, like playgrounds, libraries, sports facilities and art and community centres. So it's always got public benefit and it always comes back and is connected with the communities. And we work really hard to make sure that we're aligned and avoid duplication with any other funding programmes such as the Woodland Fund that also exist. And that's why it's important that the ideas and the applications come from the communities themselves. I've worked in funding and community engagement for many years and I think if something is happening in a community like HS2 or any other development, there's a lot of road developments going on for example at the moment, then the community have the right to the fair share of funding. It's then their decision on what they want to, if they want to come forward and what they want to come forward with. But by having the programme independently administered and with independent oversight and insight from myself as independent chair with our panel, It means that we're not judging whatever relationship or opinion they have of HS2. We want to back great community ideas and quality projects. So I hope that enables community leaders and organisations to come forward with confidence. And Cathy says the key to getting good applications is by working closely with the local communities to not only make them aware of the funding that's available, but also help to guide them through the application process. I'm very passionate and committed to making sure that every community gets their fair share of funding during construction in the first year of operation. So this is a long term project. And so we'll alert uh, colleagues in community engagement and at Groundwork UK if there's certain areas that we'd really welcome more applications from. We also find that when we publicise certain projects being successful, particularly through regional and local media, it starts sort of spreading ideas. People think, oh, this is possible. They might back my idea. And we've really worked hard to give positive feedback that some of those projects near to the line of route may have come back second or third time. We want a quality application, but we will support them to put through good information to us that gives us the assurance to back them and fund them. Alongside the Community and Environment Fund, Cathy also runs the Business and Local Economy Fund, or BLETH for short. I think it's incredibly helpful to support partnerships of businesses, clusters of businesses, a high street or a group of independent businesses. It's small to large scale on gaining the support they need. We're working alongside councils, business improvement districts, growth hubs, for example, getting out and about and talking to them to say, we can see because of the line of route on the map, you might have a cluster of businesses. That doesn't mean it's guaranteed in any way that you'll be given funding, but we want to make sure you know about the opportunity and come forward. Work for Cathy and her team over the many years they have been running the funds is simply letting local communities know that the funds are available. Cathy has been encouraging contractors from up and down the supply chain to engage with the communities they are working in to help spread the word about the funds and get word out there. But I think what we have found with the funding programme over six or more years now is that by talking to communities about their needs and ambitions, it helps balance out the conversation. And that's what the funding programme is. It's above 
mitigation it's above compensation it is about giving back to communities and i think if you're out there on the ground i hope by knowing the projects that we're funding and there's an online map available you can go and click around and read and look at the line of route and find out more about those projects but also might see or hear a gem of an idea from a community and please encourage them to apply it really helps us work together because we've got to work together for many many years on this project the business fund is not the only way hs2 is working towards an economic legacy we heard in episode eight about the Old Oak and Park Royal Development Corporation, which aims to bring economic regeneration to the area around Old Oak Common Station. But that isn't the only example of a development corporation set up on the HS2 route. I'm Jonathan Brotherton. I'm the managing director of Solihull's Urban Growth Company. The goal of the Urban Growth Company, or UGC, is similar to the work being done at Old Oak Common. The mission is to accelerate and improve the redevelopment of an area of three square miles known as the UK Central Hub. So we work in partnership with Birmingham Airport, with uh, the National Exhibition Centre or NEC as it's known, and also Jaguar Land Rover and Birmingham Business Park. The main focus of the UGC is the area surrounding the new interchange station. But unlike the area around the Old Oak Common station, currently there is nothing there. So it's an area called Arden Cross. It's, it's a place that doesn't exist yet. It's, it's, an, it's going to be a new place. And that's the home of the new HS2 interchange station that's, that's being built at the moment. So there's a triangle of land there, about 350 acres of land um, surrounding the, the area where the station's being built. And there's a whole load of infrastructure going in there at the moment, roads and uh, another infrastructure that HS2's building. We're co-investing alongside HS2 and the objective is to build a, a new district within that triangle. The interchange station is like no other on the HS2 route and it provides the area with a unique opportunity for development. Birmingham obviously is, is the second city. We're halfway between London and Manchester on the new uh, high-speed line, so the fact that we'll be connected to, to both of those cities in less than 40 minutes, heading north or south, is really quite transformational. That's the first point. Then secondly, there's the, the scale of the site itself. It's it's unusual on the HS2 line to have a new station in a, in a rural area where there's a significant scope for expansion with a very supportive local authority that's allocating land through its local plan for or development. So you've got a, a a very supportive local environment that wants to see growth and new homes, new jobs created there. And it's not being shoehorned into a an urban an urban an existing urban area, um, as is the case with the other stations on the HS2 line. So that 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 set of circumstances is unique. The plans for the Arden Cross area, yes, include multiple brand new transport links to connect with the centre of Birmingham and beyond, but they also include thousands of new homes and six million square feet of commercial development. Major infrastructure projects like HS2 give local councils and communities the opportunity to attract investment and to think long term about developments and regeneration. And while the UGC's main focus is on Arden Cross, they are working with companies and communities across Birmingham. 
and Jonathan believes that HS2 and the external investment coming in with it will provide a huge boost to the whole of the West Midlands. If you fast forward 30 years, there will be over 7 million square feet of commercial development that, that doesn't currently exist, or, or it's just, just in the early days of being developed. There'll be over 8,000 new homes. There'll be, on current value, over £6 billion per annum extra going into the West Midlands economy. And there'll be tens of thousands of new jobs. And that, that's particularly important for East Birmingham and North Solihull, which is an area of, of huge deprivation. So so although, although Solihull as a borough is very affluent and very leafy and green if you go to the to the to the north of Solihull and into into East Birmingham there is significant deprivation so the fact that we're creating all of these opportunities within minutes of, of travel time for for people who already live there that's going to be transformational to those those communities. While 30 years may seem like a long way away, it is exactly the sort of long-term thinking that is needed when considering the benefits and legacy of major infrastructure projects like HS2. I mean, railways are expensive to build, period. <laughs> so if you're going to invest in a railway, um, you've, got, you've got to go, right, it's going to cost a lot of money, but there are going to be long-term benefits. So a bit like, you know, the Elizabeth line now. Everyone moaned about it being over budget. Everybody moaned about it being late. Now they love it. It's burst into the seams. It was needed. And I think HS2 will be the same as that as well. Diane has seen firsthand on HS1 how a major infrastructure project can regenerate local areas. In the early days, Eurostar went into Waterloo. In terms of where the terminal was going to be long term, Michael Hesseltine, John Prescott, previous sort of Secretary of States for, 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 for Transport for, for Labour and, and, and the Tories, effectively wanted HS1 to also be regenerative. And yeah, the area around King's Cross and sort of St Pancras was awful. <laughs> I know because I used to run King's Cross Station um, in the early 90s um, and it was horrendous. Uh, nothing like what you sort of see today. King's Cross went through a major development plan similar to those that have been set up around Interchange and the Old Oak Common Stations. And that development plan resulted in 19,000 new jobs in the area, more than 1,700 new homes and 10 new public parks and squares. And just like HS2 has, at the time, HS1 also faced its own set of route selection issues. I remember in those days, it's like, well, why the hell are you going to Ebbsfleet kind of thing? You know, how did you design it? And, and there were these jokes going around at the time that, you know, the route was picked by someone putting a map on the, their kitchen table and they went like this. Well, you know, probably a good way of doing it, actually. <laughs> but, um, but if you talk to the people that were involved in the construction, uh, we had, you know, the, the programme had the same kind of challenges that you have or HS2 has had around sort of stakeholders, taking stakeholders with you. Uh, you know, we don't want it here, not in my backyard. But it, you know, it wasn't without controversy. But now that HS1 has been operational for years, the line's users and the local communities have seen the benefits it brings and attitudes have changed. If you go to Ashford now and sort of say 
to people, oh, you know, what, what do you think of the high speed? Oh, it's brilliant. We love it, you know. And it's regenerated Ashford. It's regenerated parts of North Kent that really did need regenerating. And those are sort of some of the unintended consequences that, you know, the route was never planned for that. And and, and the ironic thing now is is you have sort of some towns uh, that lobbied very hard for the high speed route not to go through through them. Uh, so it didn't, which is one of the reasons it ended up going up through North Kent, through Ebsfleet. Um, so the likes of Maidstone. So everybody in Kent now wants a, a, a connection to the high-speed rail link. <laughs> so lobbied against it and now lobbying, you know, to be part of the high-speed network. And with HS1, many of the economic and environmental benefits have gone beyond what was expected in the original business case. We calculated that uh, we brought a billion pound worth of tourism revenue in, into the UK economy. That wasn't in the original business case. 350 million socioeconomic value to the Kent economy. Additional housing down at Ibsfleet, giving people back productivity um, in terms of journey times. And then you look at the kind of the environmental benefits um, and certainly with the decarbonisation agenda so prevalent now or, you know, at the top of everyone's list of things that are important. Uh, we take 750,000 tonnes of carbon out of the air every year because 66,000 flights are taken out of the air because of Eurostar having 80% market share of Paris and Brussels. Uh, you know, and on top of all of that, I've got an asset that's only 45% utilised. And part of our narrative is, wow, you could double the benefits if you increase the utilisation of the asset. So if you run more trains, you're going to get more socioeconomic benefits. Mega projects on the scale of HS2 offer the chance to reshape the country and regenerate communities. But creating a legacy isn't something that happens by accident. It's something that needs to be planned, considered and put into action from day one. Throughout this series, we've heard how HS2 has helped reshape many industries that have now developed new working methods and technologies, like in construction. HS2 is a once-in-a-lifetime investment by UK government. And I think the legacy for HS2 will be that infrastructure for future generations. But in addition, we will have also learnt some lessons for construction along the way and will have developed new working practices and new materials to really help to clean up construction. In ecology. We're really lucky HS2, I think, that we are, it's open to funding quite a lot of innovation projects. We're trialling the use of drones and sensor technology to collect more data on how habitats are doing and monitoring data. And in many others like archaeology, ground investigations, health and well-being and station design. Building HS2 is about increasing capacity, but HS2's legacy reaches beyond that. It's helping the UK achieve net zero goals. It's inspiring the youngest generation's interest in STEM. It's employing the next generation of engineers. And it's supporting economic growth at both a local and national level, now and into the future. 
We may have heard it best all the way back in episode one when we heard from Andrew McNaughton, the man who was in charge of drawing the HS2 route on a map. When he said... This is about developing the future. This is about a future where the natural way of connecting cities is by this environmentally sensitive, very low carbon, very efficient transport system. Thank you so much for listening to How to Build a Railway. Your host has been me, Fran Scott, and thanks to our guests for this episode, Natalie Penrose, Diane Crowther, Kathy Elliott, Jonathan Bretherton, Alex Couchman and Sam Harris. To learn more about HS2, go to hs2.org.uk or follow us on social media at HS2LTD.